And welcome back to another episode of Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hill Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolot. And it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Devorah Shabtai. This is a great follow-up episode that we had to a few weeks ago with Moshe Yachnes, where we dealt about addiction on a super high level. And today we get to deep uh, dive deep again to the specifics and to the weeds of it and what causes it. We get to discuss this new phenomenon of religious trauma. So stay tuned. I think you'll like this one very much. And without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Laura Shabtai, LCSW and PhD candidate, currently serves as the Vice President of Clinical Development at Onward Living, an addiction rehab program for Jewish men in Boca Raton, Florida. Devorah specializes in the treatment of addiction and spiritual religious trauma, as well as clinical program design that is tailored to meet the clinical and cultural needs of, of members of the Orthodox Jewish community within both inpatient and outpatient levels of care. Alongside clinical work, Devorah has a background in evidence-based research, and her current doctoral research is examining spiritual, religious identity development and its relationship to mental health. Devorah Shabtai, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What an honor to be here. So why don't we just dive in from the get-go, off the bat. What is religious trauma? Uh, my my favorite and least favorite question. Um, so something that we have seen uh, through our work in our addiction mental health programs um, is that many times when someone from the Jewish community comes in for treatment, um, and really they're coming on the surface because they're in pain. They're in pain because they might have a mental health uh, disorder um, that is now really kind of gotten to the place of acuity where they cannot function in their lives. Uh, maybe because of, of trauma that they've experienced, um, they've kind of shut down, you know, and they can't really live in their life. They can't forge relationships. They can't really be the people that they are because they are just so in pain um, and 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 guarded. Um, you know, there is kind of a variety of reasons people present into treatment. Um, and just like in any other community, right, there's there's mental health struggles, um, there's addiction, um, you know, there are these kind of these predictable challenges. But something that we have found um, through working more exclusively with the Jewish community, is that every single person comes in with a story, a story that is not just about their mental health and not just about their addictive behaviors, but about something that they have experienced in the context of their religious experience. Um, and for some people, that's because they're in a family that's a religious family. And so the difficulties and the dysfunction um, that has occurred in the family, nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with Yiddishkeit, nothing to do with spirituality, but because it's in a religious family, or maybe it's in a school, in the yeshiva, um, some, some degree of inferiority, of shame, of not being able to keep up, um, maybe because of something about them, their personality, their learning styles. Um, and so when these things happen in the religious context, that type of trauma, which we have come to call religious trauma, 
now blocks them from their ability to connect in so many other ways. And so something that we found is to really get to the core of the healing, we can't just look at the addiction. We can't just look at the trauma. We can't just look at the mental health. We have to dial it back and say, what is it now in their core beliefs surrounding religion and spirituality that we also have to bring into the picture? So would it be like an incident or just general, the upbringing that happens to be associated with religion that leads to this trauma? Is there something specific that necessarily happened to them? Yeah. And it's something that, that's so interesting to see um, and heartbreaking to see because for some people, um, you know, there was some, some major events, maybe there a Rebbe or, you know, or a, again, a religious father who was, you know, with a beard and, and, and really, uh, you know, staunch in his learning and had hakpada about halacha. But when it came to the relationship, there was that real significant abuse. Um, and for some people, it's a series of mini experiences and it's not a one-time, you know, catastrophic event. And it mirrors a little bit what we've learned in the literature, um, about trauma, in general, um, you know, for some people, we have what we would call, you know, that kind of acute or single incident trauma. Um, and for many people who are really struggling and dysfunctional because of trauma, it's something that we call complex trauma, where it really was just the way in which they went about their lives and building their ability to kind of relate to other people through a series of dysfunctional experiences, not a big, you know, bomb that goes off, not a gunshot, you know, scary experience, but just going through life where you do not feel safe in who you are. You do not feel safe in the relationships. You do not feel safe in your identity. Um, and the the two main places that I have personally seen um, this trauma develop um, is in the home um, and in the, and in the yeshiva system. And this is just a disclaimer. I am not here at all to shed or you know, cast any type of judgment or anything negative at all on our system. Um, so that is a disclaimer that I'm putting out there. But what it is, it's the lived experience of people who do come into a system which has its rules, which has its kind of format and infrastructure. And if there's something about the person that does not allow them to thrive in that setting, to fit in. So for example, um, we work with many young men in our treatment center who are very, very talented people, but they do have something in their learning um, learning style, maybe it's a overt learning disability or ADHD, um, or maybe they're more personality wise, kind of their, their wiring, um, is a bit more of that sensitive kind of emotional, um, you know, soulful spirit. But when they're in the yeshiva that has certain outcome expectations, and they, they are not keeping up with those and they don't have the language to understand what the struggle is. So they just keep pushing and pushing. So now it's not just that they can kind of say, well, there's something about me that needs to be um, supported and maybe I need to you know, get a coach or go to a therapist. Um, but now it's there's something about my ability to connect to all of Yiddishkeit and that globalization that happens, just like what happens in general with trauma. If somebody has a parent who is is unwell and who treats them a certain way um, and they are they undergo neglect or abuse or something negative in that relationship. What people tend to do, the way that our brains work is that we globalize that now to all of relationships. And so the person might start to feel as they get older and older that all of relationships and therefore the world itself is not a safe, loving, nurturing place. And so the, the psychological outcome of that is devastating. And so we're finding that religious trauma works very similarly to all of trauma. It's a very similar mechanism. 
The unique issue though, is that once I have religious trauma, the thing that is supposed to be the most deep, profound source of support in my life, my, my spirituality, God, Hashem, my ability to connect to other people in the Jewish community, that's what becomes interrupted. And that's why this is such a devastating and crucial thing to for the community to learn about and for us to really develop um, interventions for specifically. Right. You got to confront it uh, head on. And I, uh, I definitely appreciate the disclaimer. Um, yeshivas in general, they're doing a great job. The Rebbeim have never been more well-trained and, you know, all that says sometimes things happen and that's what we cannot overlook. Um, can you give me maybe a, a specific example? Um, like maybe if you have a patient, you know, without names, you know, something that you could like kind of illustrate for us in real time, what that looked like and, and how, you know, what happened to the person? What were some of the causes and triggers? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and I can give you kind of two maybe common, you know, quick, 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 quick vignettes here. Um, so if there's a person who has just like anyone else, a, a predisposition toward, toward anxiety, right? So let's say we have, we have a, a, a boy, um, who has a kid really struggles, you know, with social anxiety. Um, again, maybe there's that, that, uh, difficulty kind of with, uh, traditional, learning environments, um, more of a rambunctious type of kid. And maybe socially, it's very, very hard to kind of, uh, you know, to, to fit in. Um, now, throughout life, any any social structure that he's a part of um, is going to create an opportunity for him to have a mirror held up that he's inferior. Um, and so we see this a lot, you know, our community, which is a, you know, a beautiful platform for many, many people um, to have ongoing experiences to connect to other people socially um, and to learn and to grow and to kind of thrive, uh, right? We're a very academic group of people. But if someone has a mental health challenge that has not gone addressed, and that mental health challenge now becomes something that's a barrier. So again, many people and adults can experience this too in shul, right? Shul and the chagim and Shabbos, like everything is always giving many, many opportunities for socialization. But if I have unmanaged anxiety or depression, bipolar disorder, um, OCD, right? Something that makes it hard for me to function fluidly in a social environment. Now I'm going to start to associate anything that is causing me that type of pain and that discomfort and that feeling like I'm just, there's something wrong with me. Now I'm associating that with religion and Torah and then it becomes, you know, when you boil it down, now it's my relationship with Hashem. Because anytime I step into something that has a religious association, that's a trigger automatically for pain. And so it's crucial in that first vignette um, for the mental health to really become put at the forefront. And that's why treatment programming um, that can really do all of this, that can assess and evaluate what is going on with the person in terms of just a basic, you know, normal quote unquote mental health, nothing to do with the addition of the, you know, religious community um, and maybe the cultural elements, but to really be able to rewind back what is challenging the person in general? And then how is that challenge? How has that been a barrier, you know, between myself and the community? So one thing, just in vignette number one, is anything that's an impediment, a barrier to connecting to the community. Because the community has nothing to do fundamentally, ideologically with Yiddishkeit. 
But the fact that our community, which is the most beautiful thing in the world, has so many social expectations. If someone is struggling with socialization and with the ability to be productive and the ability to kind of go out there and be one of the, uh, you know, the members of, of society. Now, it's not just that I'm struggling with that. It's now I cannot connect and engage with Yiddishkeit and that additional pain and that additional sense of alienation, I find has a vicious cycle. It's a ripple effect. And now it's not just anymore the anxiety or the depression. Um, it, it's really my entire ability to be a Jewish person in a community. And now the shame, the guilt, the frustration, the sense of loss of self that gets triggered, that now becomes its own monster um, to really tackle. And then it becomes confusing to the person, like what is the problem to begin with? It must be about God. It must be community. And then many times we do see people leaving altogether. By the time they come into our treatment programs, many people have really lost, you know, their their religious connection, their relationship to Hashem. Um, and, you know, we haven't really touched upon addiction, but for many, many people, addiction has become the solution to that. If I walk, if I'm supposed to go to shul because my father is forcing me to go to shul and I can't manage shul because of anxiety or because I just don't feel connected, using marijuana, drinking, turning to drugs just to get through that um, or turning to drugs to find an alternate culture of people who are doing things and they accept me, that becomes a very appealing thing for many, many people. And so now we don't just have the underlying mental health or the learning disabilities that have caused pain in the yeshiva system and then racked up now to the fact that I can't feel connected in the community. Now I add drugs on top of that to try to self-soothe, which again, is a very appealing solution. And now by the time they come to treatment, they are, there's a tornado of problems, a tornado of chaos um, and really good treatments knows how to dial that back and to tease apart one by one by one to find that core of that person again. And that's really what, you know, we focus a lot on, um, you know, in our programs um, and something that I found to be incredibly meaningful to watch a person restore their, their, you know, back to themselves and to kind of tease apart these different experiences of trauma um, and get them the help they might need for the, for the initial trigger of what led them to feel disconnected from community. Um, that to me is one of the most meaningful things I've ever witnessed in my life. Wow. That was a lot. <laughs> that was great. Okay. So uh, I was jotting down as you were, um, as you were uh, speaking I, and I, Three points that I, I want to make sure that I'm getting um, and our listeners understand. So number one, uh, many people, maybe not all, but many people are starting off with a predisposition, right? There's something there that makes them vulnerable, makes them a candidate, if you will, um, for something unfortunate to happen. Um, next, there's a globalization that even if it was not necessarily religious per se, but since that's such an emphasis on their lifestyle, um, and there's going to be an association that kind of takes over the whole religious um, part of their life. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And maybe, and, and thank you for kind of, uh, you know, breaking it down in that way. Um, and if I can just add one point to, to each one of those to maybe, you know, make this a little more clear sure. um, and detailed for, for our listeners. Um, so the predisposition really comes in many shapes, sizes, and flavors. And I think that the mental health world um, in some ways has, done a disservice by trying to collapse everything together. I think people tend to try to look for the answer. And so you'll have these fads where now everything is trauma or everything is psychiatric, you know, dysfunction, or maybe now, you know, then we go in waves. And I think it's very important for people whose children are dealing with something or for themselves who are dealing with something to understand 
we can arrive in very similar problems, such as addiction, with a host of different origin stories. For some people, again, it's a psychiatric, organic, biological issue. We can talk about bipolar disorder, OCD, depression, anxiety, um, you know, things that are really, not to get too technical, but are really deficiencies in neurochemistry. And that's why medication, you know, is so important for those who this is their kind of origin story, because unmanaged, any of these things is going to be a setup for, again, the the addiction to set in because we're trying to self-soothe or something that is stopping me from from functioning and then retreating in shame for some people it's the trauma when i grow up in a world and my world doesn't make sense because my my like my love my um caretakers did not provide me with that sense of nurturing or stability or the ability to to really feel safe in the world now i'm going to shut down the world becomes a scary place to which I have to defend myself. And so we see that a lot with things like personality disorders. So people will come in sometimes with borderline personality, narcissistic personality, antisocial personality. Those are trauma-based disorders. Um, For some people, again, there's just there's something that they, they've not built up their self, self-esteem, right? For some reason, the world just has kind of um, blocked them or they've blocked themselves from finding themselves and that kind of that vicious cycle and that also a setup for addiction. So yes, the predisposition piece, but it's very important to realize that that has many, many different um, kind of entryways. Um, and then yes, the globalization, because that's what we do. We globalize. So if I, if I grow up in a world and, you know, everyone is blue, um, you know, I'm going to walk through my life. And if I feel like I'm green, now I feel like I'm the one that has the problem, right? So if there's something in my environment that I'm not really um, connecting with or engaging with, I'm going to think the problem is me. Um, but I'm going to think initially that the problem is outside of me. And so we have a lot of our, our guys who come into our program, they will come in cursing at God, they will come in cursing at Jewish people, they never want to talk to a Jewish person again. But yet they're craving that, which is why they are so comforted when they can talk to people who speak their same language. There's that wrestling, that ambivalence. Um, So this globalization piece, I find, is what makes people oftentimes feel very, very trapped because I don't have another place to go. Like, this is my community. I am a Jewish person. It actually does provide me a sense of meaning and support, but it also provided me the biggest pain that I've ever experienced. So I don't know what to do with that. And that's why the trauma work that's done on a clinical level for many people is the only solution. Wow. So there's all this like heavy dose of cognitive uh, dissonance here. And that's what you could understand why addiction becomes like, you know, kind of like the solution to many. Um, So walk us through your recovery because like now, like, where do you start? Do you work on the addiction? Do you work on the religious trauma? Do you work on the initial predisposition? Maybe there's something in childhood, there's nature and nurture. So like, where do you begin? Yeah, and that that question of where do we begin is something that we ask ourselves every single day. Every time a beautiful neshama, you know, comes into our treatment center and they're coming in with a, I don't want to want to say a bag. They're coming in with like suitcases filled, right? We get the, we get those crisis calls. The person has already overdosed. That person is already manic and 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 experiencing psychosis and, and suicidality and self harm, like. The, the origin story is so far past in the rear view mirror and they are coming in now on the verge of, of collapse. And so something that we really do and I'm very, very um, proud of um, in our program is we look to really get that clinical picture, that clinical portrait of the person. And we look in our in our inpatient program to slow down the story. 
Um, something that I have found does not often work is when people jump into specific modalities right away. Let's do EMDR, let's do IFS, let's do somatic, right? Let's do all these things. And it's like, one second, we don't even know what this person has struggled with that has led them here and jumping into quickly throwing medication. So all of those things. So one thing that we do is we slow things down. We do comprehensive evaluation. Oftentimes that includes neuropsychological evaluation. We look at IQ. We look at if somebody has social cognitive deficits. Um, We do MMPI type of, you know, personality inventories to see that person's um, character structure um, and really in-depth psychiatric evaluation. Um, and whether that's coming, someone coming in for addiction, mental health, it doesn't matter what it comes in because we believe that a person might have gone into a certain realm of dysfunction, um, but that's not the issue itself. We really look to get to the core, to go under the hood. Um, and it's been really unbelievable what we have been able to find. Um, I'll give you a quick example. There are many people who are in and out of treatment. They're diagnosed with bipolar disorder. They're diagnosed with all things and treated for that. What comes when we do the testing, we find they're actually on the autism spectrum or they have a learning disability. And that is what has over the years led them to act out in certain ways, led them to have that type of aggression that may look like a different psychiatric disorder. So if you don't get the baseline picture, it's very hard to craft a treatment plan and an intervention. So step number one, in terms of what uh, we do, um, again, this is the program that, you know, Moshe Yachnis, who I know was on the show recently, um, you know, that, that he owns, and then I have the privilege to help uh, craft the, the clinical programming. So we really take seriously our, our evaluation, our understanding of the person. Once that's done, we look to get them grounded. A lot of our treatment that are inpatient is not yet jumping into the core Kishka work, as we call it. We save that for later when the person is more stabilized. We get them grounded. So we do things, um, you know, that are that are their skill building for emotional regulation. We'll do things like yoga, acupuncture, um, DBT type of skills, which is really the gold standard for just a lot of that emotional regulation capacity. We really focus a lot on socialization. We have a beautiful community of people within our treatment program, and we really get them in conversation. You know, we say that our treatment program and any treatment program is really a microcosm of the world. It's like a safe stage upon which you could see what triggers you because there are other people there. There is responsibility. You have to keep to a schedule. You have to do your chores. So we get to see in real time what is a trigger for the person, but there's a safety net because we are a group of therapeutic, you know, uh, providers. We have um, other people who are there are there for support. And so they can kind of, they have enough rope so that they can struggle, but in real time, we're like gathering the data. So when I watch someone blow up a, a friend in a group, because that friend called him out on something that made him so uncomfortable, Um, Now I understand something about that person. I understand how hard it is for him to be in relation to other people um, who he feels misunderstands him. And we use that um, as part of the clinical picture. So once they're now more grounded and and socializing more because it's safe um, and doing more productive things, schedule, you know, clinical schedule, then the next step becomes... um, what treatment intervention do they need? So for many people, they do need a course of trauma work. For some people, it's really the mental health, you know, psychoeducation and, you know, whatever corresponding treatment would would be warranted for that particular diagnosis. Um, but then what, when you kind of go further ahead, um, we have a program called Onward Living, which I know I'm biased, but I think it's one of the most beautiful um, communities that I've ever witnessed. It's a recovery community for Jewish men. 
And every single person who comes in came in in pain, but is motivated by the time they come to onward living, which is an outpatient, they are stable enough to engage in things like working um, and being on their own and really building a life of autonomy, but within a safety net of recovery support. And what I find really does the trick to long-term recovery and long-term growth is that they connect themselves back to a community. And the things that have been barriers toward those connections, whether it's their own internal pain, again, the mental health issues we've, we've talked about that might've been a barrier in their real world community. Now that they have a therapeutic community of people they trust and they're learning in real time how to break open into vulnerability and openness and honesty and push themselves out of their discomfort and learn that, that the things they believed about others can be relearned. And the, the core beliefs about other people can be rewritten. And when they experience that for themselves, to me, that's the healing that they take with them portably when they leave. It's not the DBT, CBT acronyms, EMDR um, that does it. Those are very important skills while a person is learning to reconnect. But ultimately, it's the bonds, that attachment, um, which you know they carry with them into recovery. And for many, it's a 12-step recovery program. Um, it's the ability to feel self-efficacy, you know, in onward living, the day starts with clinical and then they go off into the workplace and we push them to, to, to stay in that workplace despite their fears and anxieties and all the things that have kept them collapsing in work. We keep them there and then they can experience attachment to themselves and the fact that they can do it. And so it's really that ability to experience in a real way attachment to others, attachment to themselves, and then the third piece, reattachment to spirituality. Um, we do a lot of religious trauma work in Onward Living. Um, we are not a care center. We say that all the time. Our goal is not to make them more religious. Again, like I said, many of the guys do come in and they're no longer practicing, or at least not in the same way. But when they can learn to have experiences that are positive and beautiful and connecting, those painful, negative, toxic associations from their past become replaced. And to me, that is the formula. Attachment to self through working, autonomy, being accountable for their chores, accountable that they're in a community, attachment to themselves, then attachment to other people, that recovery community, that, that group work that they do, where you push them to get honest and open and that they can see that other people are a safe place of support because they many of them did not experience that. And then slowly and subtly, you know, we have Shabbos dinner every single week, but it's a beautiful Shabbos. We have Yantif experiences, It's but it's beautiful. It's not with that pain and that chaos, maybe from their homes or from their communities. Um, we have a rabbi on staff who is nothing but love and acceptance and educating them on certain, you know, principles that they just have never let themselves internalize because of that pain. Um, that's, that's where the growth often comes in. Wow. So does Judaism uh, play a role in the recovery at all, or is it trying to get to the underlying issues and then the religious part that's been, you know, traumatized just kind of like resolves on its own? Yeah, I find it's a really interesting order. Um, because there are therapists out there and there are, um, you know, people who believe that Yiddishkeit itself, like the concepts, the principles, those are therapeutic. And ironically, uh, when I started in this career, that's actually what, what drew me in. You know, I was trained in uh, spiritually integrated uh, treatment um, and I was, you know, working with seminary girls and I was so excited to take the principles of Yiddishkeit and use that as the medicine. And then when I started in this, in this, in the field of, of addiction treatment, and I saw 
that's not going to do it because they're blocked off from that very thing. And so it's really the opposite direction. It's getting them in relation to positive experiences with their own spirituality, opening them up, opening their neshamos back up, honestly, to then um, access what's already there. You know, we don't use Torah as a, uh, as a medicine. Um, we believe it's a medicine in general for for all people and for our neshama. But when someone's in pain from a mental health perspective, um, rarely does a good schmooze on, uh, you know, Rav Dessler um, actually bring, uh, you know, emotional healing. Um, but it's really what the opposite. Once they're opened up because they've had a conversation with our rabbi that didn't lead to shame and guilt and inferiority. And they can now see that a rabbi could be that. And therefore, Hashem maybe could now have a new um, image and association in their minds. And they slowly learn to turn to Hashem in their own way through, sometimes it is through 12-step recovery. Um, interestingly enough, for many, that is actually the portal of returning to Yiddishkeit. Now they're open to the medicine that Torah really is. But it has to start with a clinical therapeutic process to unleash the baggage that has been kind of on top of their uh, ability to connect. So they're, they're just not even ready for the Yiddish kite part of it. They're just, they're so turned off, you know, you, you, you got to get, you know, you got to power switch them back on and then hopefully uh, they'll get there. Yeah. And that, I'm going to add, they're not ready and they have so many negative associations that that trauma response of that trigger, when they see something, I mean, I've had, I've had men who, when they opened up a safer, um, they have a panic attack. Wow. A full-blown panic attack from opening up a safer. Um, I've worked with guys who have gone into shul. I actually give assignments, uh, exposure therapy, religious trauma exposure therapy assignments to just walk into a shul, walk into a base manjush. And I've had to be on the phone with some of those guys as they walk in because that's how traumatizing. And again, back to that disclaimer, it's not because anyone did anything wrong. It's not because the yeshiva system or the base manjush system, those are places of kedusha. Those are places of connection. And that's why religious trauma is so devastating because a person can't access the objectively beautiful nature of those places because they happen to have had subjective negative experiences in those places. So just like if I walked into an ice cream store and that's when I saw a shooting um, and I lost a loved one, God forbid, in an ice cream store, every ice cream store in the country is going to have that memory. So when I had a negative experience in the base medrash with with a with a, a religious figure who we wouldn't believe is truly a religious figure, we wouldn't connect that to religion, but they did. And now every religious figure. Um, and so, you know, really being able to kind of rewire new experiences is a clinical intervention. So it's not that they're only not ready, it's that it's that we have to just get them to a place of neutrality. And that takes a, a true intervention. And there are certain you know, therapies that I find to be most effective, such as IFS. I've done a lot of religious trauma work using IFS, which is internal family systems, to really go in deep and say, which part of you is the one that's traumatized in religion? And it's very interesting that when you give people that space to, to tease apart which parts have been hurt, and usually it's that, that inner child who experienced something quite painful, they can access the truth of themselves. Um, when they can just move apart some of those other, those other, uh, you know, inner, inner children, um, because the neshama is there. I've watched it in my clinical office in real time. People who came in cursing, screaming, yelling, I never want to see a Jewish person. Don't, you know, expletive, expletive, talk to me about God, you know, and then when they're in that zone, they actually tap back into the connection that they want, that they're craving, that they need. And I've watched adults cry like a baby 
when they say, I really miss God. I really want that again. It's there. It just has to be found. Wow. So let, let's let's dive in on childhood because it, it, it is said, there's a theory that, um, I don't know if most, but maybe a lot of people's uh, uh, mental um, you know, health is based on childhood. Do you find that to be true? And maybe uh, ex- elaborate a little bit on, you know, what something, you know, that was unfortunate, how that translates into adulthood. Absolutely. So when a person comes into this world, when a baby is born, they are a blank slate. There are no messages in there. There is no experiences in there. They are come in ready to experience what life actually is and to learn. And every experience they go through, through their early ex- caretakers and, um, you know, the stages of development, you know, again, not to get too uh, ner- nerdy and technical here, but, um, you know, we believe in psychological science that there are certain predictable stages. The first one being trust and mistrust. So if I go through my early infancy and I cry and I receive what I need, now I learn that life is going to be a place that I'm going to have needs. I'm allowed to have needs and I'm going to receive my, my needs. I'm going to have them met. If babies go through and they don't get those needs met, that's going to be what they learn. And as they go through and they get through all the other stages and they start to learn, can I do it? If I stand up, am I going to fall? Am I going to, is someone going to push me to get back up? Am I going to learn how to do these things? And if I can master certain skills, the message I get is I'm capable. But what if the messages that a person receives is that I'm not capable? I'm yelled at, I'm put down, I'm berated, or I'm just neglected. Maybe my parents are well-meaning, but they just didn't have this the time for me. So anytime I tried to have a voice and I tried to show a skill, I didn't get that feedback. So I'm just going to learn that really I'm not capable. And so really childhood is a series of experiences that teach certain messages about myself about others and about the world. And the devastating thing about trauma is it doesn't take all that much for the traumatic experience to set in. It could be well-meaning families that are just struggling. It could be, you know, people who were abused themselves. And so they don't know how to show love and, and, and they unfortunately do repeat that cycle. Um, and what happens is our childhood experiences set the template for all other experiences and all other relationships in our lives. Um, and back to that predisposition, if someone also is, is wired for certain mental health conditions and I go through those negative experiences, those things might come out earlier. You know, we believe in epigenetics. We believe that if someone is predisposed to depression, anxiety, bipolar, et cetera, um, but I have certain functional experiences, I might be able to manage that better. But when the chaos sets in on the internal landscape, um, oftentimes those things will, will come out. And so um, it can it can be really, really, really important, um, of course, as parents to understand the, you know, um, the, the way that psychological development happens. Um, but I think it's also important to intervene as soon as we do see something within ourselves and within our children and within our spouses and within our st- students and our Talmidim, Talmidos, um, to really take it seriously, because these things tend to, to rack up into more and more and more. And again, to me, addiction is usually like that, that, that last that last piece, you know, we think addiction is its own thing. Usually it, it, it's born out of a series of things that like you're pointing out, um, do start in our early childhood experiences. Wow. So what, you know, what would you suggest to someone who's, you know, going through something like that re- recognizes that they maybe had some, um, you know, series of experiences as a child and it's starting to take a toll on them. What's, what's their first step? Yeah, I, I think that, the first step is what you just said is, is that realization. 
Um, you know, we say in addiction that there are different stages of, of change. Um, and the, 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 what the first stage is actually pre, is actually pre contemplation, which is before a person even knows there's a problem to begin with. And many of us walk around where we're, we're okay. We're going through life. Maybe our marriage isn't perfect or our parenting isn't perfect or my performance at work isn't perfect or my vote as Hashem isn't perfect. But you know what? Nothing's too bad. And that pre-contemplation is usually what, what, what hinders change. When we move into what they call contemplation, which means I am now just aware. It got on my radar. Something is not right. I, when I am trying to connect to my spouse, feel uncomfortable with emotional expression. What's with that? Maybe, you know, that's something to take a look at. Or um, I'm really angry and just my blood pressure when I'm a parent. Like, I'm not the type of parent that I believe in, that I kind of want to be. Um, just having that come into awareness without shutting down. I think in this generation, we tend to overemphasize that, you know, we want to have everything positive and avoid conflict. And I think that as our, you know, Bali and Muster have, uh, have shared with us, um, you know, for years and years and years, acknowledging and identifying that there is something that is not going right and staying with that and being curious about that um, and recognizing that there are many people out there who can help with that. That's first. Before we even get into like, what treatment do I need? Staying with that and not having to shut that down out of out of guilt, out of shame, out of, um, you know, not feeling like it can get better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, back to religious trauma, um, the, the, you know, on a super high level, this is like kind of new to me. Um, I've heard a lot of different types of trauma, but religious trauma was new to me. So what sparked this conversation? Uh, it's a great question. Um so, I mean, what sparked it within myself was when I went into this field, I mean, something I was always interested in, um, well, two things, psychology um, and spiritual development. I was always fascinated by how people develop their their spiritual connection, you know, because for some people, it's such an intellectual connection, right? We relate on, on, on concepts. For some people, it's like so emotional. Uh, for some people, it's about chesed and community. And I was always interested in how are people, when you ask them what religion is, they'll tell you so many different answers. Um, and I was always interested in that. And I actually thought um, that I wanted to kind of connect the two by um, bringing spirituality as a way to enhance mental health. Um, and then when I kind of fell into uh, the addiction field, which is something I never quite um, thought that I would, and now I, uh, the biggest bracha of my life, um, I realized it was the opposite direction, that people were coming in completely, completely stifled and blocked from being able to use the, the spiritual um, healing that we know from research. I actually had an opportunity before I was a clinician to be in the field of, uh, of research on spirituality and mental health. And in the laboratory, um, spirituality has been found to reduce anxiety. Um, we actually know that trust in God and Amun and Bitachon are clinical variables, and that it's been found in research, some of the research I've had the privilege to be involved with, that if a person increases their Amuna, their anxiety goes down. But what happens when they can't increase their Amuna because their entire relationship with Hashem is distorted? They're never going to be able to tap into that. And so when I saw that every single person who emerged in the rehab center that I was working in, at the time it was a non-Jewish uh, program, that we would just get some Jewish people by dint of being in South Florida. Um, and I actually went to the, uh, the, the uh, executives and I said, we have to create a program for Jewish people because they are not coming in in the same way with the same needs as everybody else. They need spaces to process these 
these negative experiences with other people who understand. Um, and so we actually created a Jewish program in a non-Jewish treatment center. Um, and it was incredible to see which elements of Yiddishkeit, culturally, religiously, which ones were relevant during the course of treatment. Um, and we did it very slowly and it was subtle. And we did not make a Jewish program that's all about becoming religious. It was a clinical program that introduced elements of Yiddishkeit for the good, the bad, and the ugly, whether that was a Shabbos dinner in some ways, whether there was a group where all these guys and girls were able to curse out the community and feel completely safe doing that and kind of, again, um, process it in a clinical setting. Um, so to me, realizing that most people who are going through something on this level have religious trauma as part of their story, um, that has really sparked my passion in in, in coming up with, uh, with, with a way to address it. And, and to educate on. Do you think people are coming around? Like it's not just you talking about it? I think so. Um, I think because it's uh, unfortunately something that is so on people's faces, whether it, it it's termed as the off the Darach movement, which I don't like that terminology. Um, but I think that because unfortunately many, many young adults um, in particular are not engaging with their Yiddishkeit. Um, I think that it, it's something that is is across the board, not only in the clinical mental health landscape, but in the educational chinuch landscape. Um, I do think that there is a need for religious therapists to not be afraid to talk about religion in the therapy. I have been very intrigued by the fact that I think because of our clinical training where we're told, stay away from religion, don't add your agenda or your values. It's not about you. A lot of from therapists feel that they Dafka have to separate that out. And so many of them will not ask their clients anything about spirituality and God. Now, to me, that sends a message that that's not something that's supposed to be talked about in therapy. Um, so I think that is the more that the, the religious therapists kind of understand this phenomenon, um, the mechanism of it, the process of it, and how it can be really um, treated. Um, I think that people, you know, will uh, hopefully, you know, become more comfortable um, with this as its own distinct uh, issue and struggle. You you mentioned that Emuna faith in Hashem is clinically uh, has been clinically proven to uh, reduce levels of anxiety. So, when do you think it is appropriate to um, bring in Yiddishkeit within the context of therapy? When's the when is it appropriate and when is it not? Yeah, I think it's appropriate when that is the agenda of the client. Um, so one thing that's really, really important in terms of uh, clinical practice and ethics is that we don't set our agenda. Um, I might come in as a religious woman who knows that that uh, from kite is the most beautiful healing thing. But when my client is in front of me cursing at Hashem, that is not the time and place to say, okay, but a relationship with Hashem is really going to be helpful to you, right? It's to create that space for healing so that one day that person comes to that on their own if they do. But when somebody emerges in our office and they're looking to take their own values of religion um, and to incorporate them in a healthier way or in a therapeutic uh, weapon, um, as I call it, that it can be, then that is very much the time and place um, to, in a savvy way, um, in a clinically driven way, to bring some of those concepts in. I've had many conversations with my clients about Bechira, about Amuna, you know, about where they see themselves in their relationship with Hashem. But that is when I'm asked and when I, I am invited to bring that in um, and not the other way around. So I must confess, I, I did speak to Moshe, Moshe Yachnas before this interview, and I kind of asked him, so what are some things that I should make sure to ask? And he told me, make sure to ask about um, a couple of things, one of which is, um, track system. What is that? 
Yeah, sure. So one thing that we're doing now in our in our program at, at Onward Living um, is we're really using this kind of academic information that you and I talked about today, um, that there are so many different origins of why people come into treatment. And so unfortunately, I think in the industry, there's become a very cookie cutter approach, right? If I'm a treatment center that deals with trauma, all out, anyone we see, you know, hammer in the nail phenomenon, um, we're going to just do trauma, trauma, trauma. And then for some people, let's say, you know, addiction. So we're just going to dose everyone up with 12-step recovery and Shalom Yisrael. So one thing that we really do is try to get to know everyone on a very individual clinical a personality level. We don't even just look at them clinically. We look, we look at them subclinically. Like, who are they? Who, who, like, is this person in front of me? Like, what are some of his strengths and interests? You know, we have a lot of musicians in our program. Um, we have a lot of people who just like are very um, academically interested. So we try to bring that in. And we try to have customized programming. So we do separate out people who are coming in more for primary mental health, people who are coming in because of the trauma as the origin, and people who are coming in as really at this point, the addiction um, relapse prevention work um, does need to be done. So we we have everyone together um, in a way that is connecting, but we also have spaces of separation so that we're not becoming a cookie cutter type of program or one size fits all, um, but that we really are addressing um, the things that are specific to their clinical picture, um, and then also welcoming spaces for things that are universal. So we believe that, again, that camaraderie, that fellowship is universal. So that's where we have everyone together. Um, but then there's places and times where it's different types of modalities, you know, different types of issues do need different types of uh, treatment interventions, you know, to see success and progress. So regarding the individual, it's customized, but regarding the masses, there's that support simultaneously. Yeah, it's a delicate, it's definitely a delicate balance. And we also at a certain point don't want to become too customized so that we are kind of going off of what the person um, themselves is, you know, requesting. So it's a little bit of a delicate balance between us being the professionals um, and, you know, and, and but also really taking into account their, their, their autonomy as individuals and what they're looking to do and grow in and what their individual struggles have been using a lot of the information that we will get often in our inpatient program. When we have that, literally we write a book on everyone. We have this like 20, 30 page, you know, um, evaluation packet at the end. And we take that in our hands and we say, this is, you know, we're not trying to box them in. We're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to take them out of the box that they're already in because of certain disadvantages and limitations. Um, and when we take that over to onward, now our clinical picture and treatment plan um, can become very unique to them and to their needs. Mm-hmm. And can you explain what is the Shonda syndrome? The Shonda syndrome is unfortunately everywhere we look. Um, you know, again, disclaimer, um, I don't think to any fault of our community because we are such a tight-knit community and things like Shaduchim um, and just really being so involved in, in, in each other's lives, right, in a Mika'amcha Yisrael way, for some has really impeded their 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 comfort level um, in, in that contemplation stage we talked about earlier. Because if I acknowledge that there's a real problem going on um, and I focus on that, what is that going to mean about, about me as a community member? Um, and so we have seen, you know, I, I get many, many calls from mothers who the first thing they tell me is, I don't, I, I'm like the only person who's dealing with this. I don't know what to do. And I want to st- tell them, and oftentimes I do, the, you're, every single neighbor of yours is uh, dealing with something similar behind closed doors. And, and that, the irony that I find that when it comes to things like death, uh, medical things, 
Um, and even I think we're opening up to, to divorce and, and things that maybe also have a bit of a stigma. There is an infrastructure, an outpouring of love and support. I mean, our entire um, life cycle is about, you know, Shiva and being a part of people's things and, and halachos surrounding, you know, showing up for people. But when it comes to mental health and addiction, many, many people have found that there is a sense of profound loneliness and profound alienation and profound judgment. Some of it is self-induced and some of it is, unfortunately, um, our community did need to catch up to the fact that these are that, they, that these are not self-inflicted things. These are not because people are bad people. This is not Yitzhahara. You know, this is not uh, anything other than one of the types of nisyonos that Hashem put into this world. Some people struggle with medical health, cancer, diabetes. Some people struggle with mental health. Um, and because of mental health, some people end up treating their children in a certain way unintentionally that does create trauma. So um, I think that the Shanda syndrome is something we are trying to combat. And onward living, I will tell you that we don't just see ourselves as um, you know, treating the, the, the men who come into our doors, but really trying to be a voice of education and motivation and inspiration to the community uh, about what these issues are, that the fact there is hope, there is treatment, there is progress. And to be honest with you, some of the most profound inspirational people that I have ever met in my life, um, even being a member of a beautiful Jewish community, are the people that I work with um, and learn from and, and gain from, you know, in, in our clients. Say that again, in your clients? I mean, our, our clients, meaning our, our, the people who are fighting every day for, for, for the fight of health and recovery and growth. I find that personally, I'm, I'm incredibly inspired by them. And so that, that to me, the, the answer to the Shanda syndrome is to say, these are beautiful people. These are not people to be looked down upon. These are not the nebuchs. These are not the people who have, you know, these like dark, uh, you know, deformities. These are every, pe- everyday people who have, different nisyonos like we all have and the fact that they can muster the courage and the fortitude and the motivation to fight this fight even despite the fact that it does in our community oftentimes carry a stigma with it to me that is a beautiful thing and something that we should all respect admire um, and really try to support so do you think it's you know in terms of like how do we address it is a lot about messaging like you know saying what you just said more and more often I believe so. And I'm always inspired, um, you know, by, by people I know, Rabbi Goldberg, you know, who was on your show, you know, he's, he's an incredible voice of, uh, you know, mental health advocacy. And I think that the more that, that Rabbanim do this from the pulpit, um, and, and, and I, and I have the privilege to speak to many Rebbeim in the yeshiva s- setting who are fighting for their Talmudim and who are trying to understand. And all of these initiatives that we see now um, in all the walks of, uh, of Yiddishkeit, um, of really mental health education for teachers, for Rebbeim, um, for Rebbeim. Um, whenever I get a call from a Rebbe in a school about his Talmud, I know that uh, that Talmud is going to do just fine because it's the Rebbe that's calling, mm-hmm. you know, which means that now he has that support in his life. Um, and I think that the more that people understand mental health and the practical tactless of what to do when my loved one, when my student, when my congregant is in need of help. Um, and I think that's how we fight this fight together. Wow. That's amazing. And as we wind down, I thought, you know, in closing, can you share with us a success story, something that, you know, someone came in and things looked pretty dark and how they turned around and what that looked like? Uh, honestly, I think every story is a success story, even if it doesn't end with the, uh, you know, the magic ribbon that we often like to see. I think the success story is the fact that they're there. Um, 
you know, but I, I will say that um, and I'm not going to share a specific because there are just so many, but I'm in touch with uh, with several um, alumni, um, some from uh, you know the previous programmings that I work with, some from from current. Um, and I can't tell you how many times the alumni that I'm in touch with, the reason that they're calling me. Um, I love when they call me just to check in and to share some, you know, some progress, but they're calling me to ask me about how they can help a friend. And they're calling me to say, I just want to share with you this initiative um, that I just put together. I have, um, you know, a, a young woman who I used to work with, who's now really, um, you know, pushing and, and at the forefront of, of educating on some things that she struggled with. Um, and I have, uh, we have some alumni who have turned into house managers um, and getting to watch them be in that in that uh, that position of support, um, and I do firmly believe it's because of the struggles that they went through that they now have that depth of compassion, of insight, of care, of devotion um, that I have not seen in people, um, you know, to that same degree um, who who have not gone through this fight. And so, getting those calls of you know I'm trying to get my friend into a treatment center, can you help me help this person? Um, or my, uh, you know, dear alumni who have turned into house managers who call me, you know, to to share with me an insight they have into one of our residents. Um, and just, uh, you know, a year ago, they were the ones who, you know, needed that intervention. Um, to me, that's, uh, that's heartwarming. Um, and, and that's part of, I think, probably some of the nicest the conversations that I've had in this field. Amazing. And, you know, I liked how you started the fact that they're there to begin with. You know, that realization is that there's hope, there's recovery, and the first step is to come. That's a success right there in and of itself. Um, it sounds cliche, but I invite anybody who uh, has any uh, different opinion to come and watch what we do, to see the conversations going on in the groups, um, the, the, the depths of introspection, of wrestling with each other, with, with oneself, of supporting each other. Um, and I don't think that you will walk out the same. Wow. And where can people learn more about? Is there a website where people can visit? Absolutely. So we are onwardliving.org and everyone um, who is in need of, of help, you know, is welcome to reach out to me, um, dshaptai at onwardliving.org. Um, and uh, be help, uh, be a pleasure to help anyone that I can. Well, amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your background, your wealth of knowledge, expertise, uh, messaging of hope. And uh, I hope this is going to be enlightening to many people as we kind of like, you know, create this narrative of uh, discussing religious trauma and not being afraid to talk about it. And hopefully that will help many, many people. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for all you're doing and all the different voices um, that you bring on to the show. It's truly uh, inspirational to see this as well. Thank you. To listen to all Colote episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Colel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.